One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. The Bucks at the Jets. Kickoff Sunday, January 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45 and a half. Game overview as of Thursday evening by Hilo. The Buccaneers currently have eight players on the league's COVID list, most notably wide receivers Mike Evans and Jalen Darden, cornerbacks Jamel Dean and Sean Murphy Bunting, and defensive tackle Rakeem Nunez Roche. The Jets currently have nine players on the COVID list, most notably left guard Aliha Vera Tucker, tight end Tyler Croft, and six defensive starters. Likely a scenario sees the Bucs absolutely trouncing the Jets, but there are some very interesting mini-tributaries that could develop here and should be considered. The Bucs are expected to score a lot, and they are an extremely concentrated offense, and there are very clear New York bringbacks. How Tampa Bay will try to win. As we saw last week, and as we expect it to be the case, the Buccaneers are towing a thin line between returning to health and continuing to take advantage of live game repetitions as they prepare for the playoffs. Although Tom Brady took all but three offensive snaps in a game the Bucs won handily, he attempted his lowest passes of the season by a large margin. This came in a game where the team was missing Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and Leonard Fournette. The team is still taking each play as an additional chance to tweak things leading into the postseason, as evidenced by Antonio Brown's 15 targets on 30 Tom Brady passes, or Ronald Jones seeing 23 running back opportunities on only 64 offensive plays, or the fact that they put up 30 or more points for the ninth time this season. But they are now mixing in chances to return to health as their chances of the NFC bye continue to dwindle with each passing week. Tampa Bay would now need to win out, would need the Packers to lose out, and would need both the Cowboys and the Rams to lose one of their remaining games in order to find themselves atop the NFC. With that discussion in mind, we should simultaneously expect the Buccaneers to continue to pay close attention to execution during individual plays and not push the envelope if the game is in hand. This is particularly important considering their opponent this week, a Jets team they should have no problems dispatching. With Leonard Fournette on IR and out this week, expect Ronald Jones to once again lead the backfield in opportunities, albeit with the additional caveat of Keyshawn Vaughn's outstanding performance in Week 16 on limited opportunities. Although there was a large discrepancy in actual opportunities, Vaughn played only 11 fewer snaps than his backfield counterpart. As such, I wouldn't immediately assume Jones sees more than the 52% snap rate he saw a week ago. Weigh those thoughts against the expected ownership and the fact that this backfield has room to the upside considering the Bucks ran only 64 offensive plays last week. The matchup on the ground is a pure one, generating a massive 4.645 net adjusted line yards metric against the Jets' defense allowing the most fantasy points per game to opposing backfields, 35. The final piece of this puzzle is the pass game rolls, or lack thereof. Jones and Vaughn saw a combined four targets on 30 Tom Brady dropbacks last week, and there is nothing in this matchup that points to the target share increasing, particularly considering Mike Evans is due back from the COVID list. We should once again expect this pass game to be highly concentrated, as the team continues to play without Chris Godwin. Mike Evans should return to his typical near-every-down perimeter role. While Antonio Brown has moved around the formation, Rob Gronkowski gets his normal allotment of snaps, 85-90%, to 90%, and Tyler Johnson and Brajad Perryman work to fill in vacated snaps on the perimeter. Of note, the team shifted to a much heavier 12 personnel usage rate last week, which should largely be attributed to available personnel. That said, we could see the same heavy sets once more here. Almost 70% of their offensive snaps came with multiple tight ends on the field last week, and Cyril Grayson was forced into a 79% snap rate, 
in only his third iteration of game action this entire year. The Jets can be beaten any which way, 29th in DVOA against the run, 32nd against the pass, so we need to weigh expected ownership against expected volume to define where Buck's exposure ends up this week. How New York will try to win. We've seen a very polarized set of offensive game plans from the Jets this year, particularly over the previous five games. Three of those games, against Jacksonville, Miami, and Houston, saw Zach Wilson attempt 24 passes or fewer in games against opponents that could be run on, while Wilson attempted 42 passes and 38 passes against the Saints and Eagles, respectively. This is important information as we think through the possible angles that the Jets could take this week, and that we can side a little heavier on the assumption of rational coaching because head coach Robert Sala has been exactly that this season, a rational coach. Against a Buccaneers team that ranks top five in most metrics against the run on defense, but could be without two members of their secondary, that also should have a healthy Vita Vea clogging the interior of their defense, we can safely assume the game plan will include increased pass rates this week. New York's backfield has become a little easier to decipher as the season has progressed. Tevin Coleman will typically be held to a 30-45% to 45% snap rate. Michael Carter is the lead back when fully healthy and should continue to see 70-plus percent of the offensive snaps to end the season. And Ty Johnson is typically active, but only sees snaps if either Coleman or Carter is out, or the game gets extremely out of hand. That said, any allure to this backfield should be focused around expected or potential game flow instead of the backfield split, as this team has so clearly adapted to individual game scripts to dictate their rush-pass splits for the entirety of this season. Considering the previous discussion, we're highly unlikely to see increased workloads for any member of the backfield this week. The matchup on the ground yields a laughable 3.95 net adjusted line yards metric against the Tampa Bay defense allowing only 21.1 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. With Corey Davis and Elijah Moore still out for the Jets, a good deal of our interest in this side of the game should come down to the status of Jamison Crowder this week, who has yet to practice with his calf injury. We know to expect some combination of Keelan Cole, Denzel Mims, and Jeff Smith on the perimeter, but the primary target for the Jets is likely to be whoever plays the slot. Braxton Berrios played a hefty 83% snap rate last week with Crowder out, but saw only six targets on only 22 Zach Wilson pass attempts. If we're expecting Wilson's pass volume to increase here, we should also expect the slot receiver's target volume to increase as well. That makes either Jamison Crowder or Braxton Berrios highly intriguing at their low salaries. Tight end Trevon Wesco hit the IR this past week, while Ryan Griffin hit the COVID list last Friday, and Tyler Croft hit the COVID list on Monday, potentially opening up snaps for Daniel Brown and or Kenny Yaboa. The big picture is the tight end situation is more likely to have a positive impact for either Crowder or Berrios than it would make one of the tight ends themselves viable. Likeliest game flow. We're likely to see the Bucks absolutely dismantle the Jets here, primarily through efficiency on offense and a suffocating defense. We'll cover this a little more in-depth below, but the best chances of the Bucks seeing a ceiling game here rest with the Jets and their ability to put up points, driving this game environment into something more of an aggression-filled back-and-forth as opposed to a waxing. Along those lines, the Jets have scored 18 or more points in four of their last five, but have done so with a higher emphasis on their own run game. Zach Wilson attempted 24 or fewer passes in three of those five games. The likeliest scenario would lead to a much heavier dose of pass volume against the stingy run defense of the Bucks which opens up more opportunities for Zach Wilson and the rest of the Jets' offense to make mistakes, closing the loop on the aforementioned likeliest scenario. But, if the Jets can muster 17-plus points on the scoreboard before the fourth quarter, we could see the Bucks filtered towards increased aerial aggression far deeper into this game. Keep those thoughts in mind when building pieces of this game into your player pool this week.
Dolphins at Titans. Kickoff Sunday, January 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 39 and a half. Game overview. As of Thursday morning. By Hilo. Miami's defense should be the driving force of the game environment here. The Dolphins have allowed just 21 points per game, while the Titans have allowed just 21.7 points per game. So a conference slugfest is the likeliest outcome here. The Dolphins currently have seven players on the COVID list, most notably Albert Wilson, Preston Williams, and starting safety Brandon Jones. The Titans currently have eight players on the COVID list, most notably Julio Jones, Nick Westbrook-Akine, Nate Davis, Taylor Lewan, Bud Dupree, and Denico Autry. How Miami will try to win. Yep, seven straight wins, immediately following seven straight losses. That's quite impressive. What has carried them through the win streak is a defense that has created pressure, generated turnovers, and limited scoring, paired with an offense that has limited mistakes. During the streak, Miami holds a modest 54% overall pass rate, 50% pass rate when playing with a lead, and 59% pass rate when trailing. They have also forced 14 turnovers, two per game average, and amassed 33 sacks, almost five per game average. Those splits would be amongst the narrowest splits in the entire league over the course of the full season, meaning the team very clearly has a game plan and they are sticking to it. What has largely gone missed is how quick this team has played, checking into week 17 with the second fastest pace of play in the first half of games, 22nd ranked second half pace of play, that averages out to 11th overall. They are now playing for a playoff spot out of the AFC. Miami currently sits in the 7th and final playoff spot, so expect more of the same formula that has gotten them here this week. The ground game has once again devolved into a three-headed timeshare after a significant turnover at the position. The team brought in Duke Johnson and Philip Lindsay to work in conjunction with Miles Gaskin down the stretch. Last week was the first week where all four primary running backs, the three previously mentioned plus Salvin Ahmed, were healthy in the same game, and we saw almost a dead-even three-way split in snap rate, with Gaskin at 31%, Johnson at 35%, Lindsay at 29%, and Ahmed the odd man out. This is very much still an offense built around the pass, but routine positive game flow over the last seven weeks has afforded the Dolphins the opportunity to maintain a pass-balanced stature. The matchup on the ground this week yields a laughable 3.915 net-adjusted line yards metric in what should be considered a pass-funnel matchup. During their seven-game win streak, the Dolphins have attempted more than 36 passes only twice, and one of those games came with Jacoby Brissett under center against the Texans. Tua has averaged just 31.6 pass attempts in the five games he started and finished during that streak, compared to 38.25 per game in his four fully healthy games prior to that time. Basically, this offense has remained run-balanced when they are able to control games, and they are not afraid to forego that balanced nature when trailing. Rookie wide receiver Jalen Waddell has emerged as one of the top possession-style wide receivers in the league, currently sitting only five receptions behind Anquan Bolden for the most receptions in a rookie season in NFL history. Joining Waddle in the starting lineup are Devontae Parker, Mike Gusecki, and Durham Smythe as the team has transitioned to heavy 12 personnel usage over the second half of the season. Smythe is primarily a blocking tight end. Gusecki plays the majority of his snaps aligned in the slot. 75.1% of his snaps this season have come from the slot. And Parker is utilized as the prototypical X wide receiver. Behind these four primary pass catchers, Albert Wilson, currently on the COVID list, Mac Hollins, Isaiah Ford, and Preston Williams have all mixed in for modest roles of late. Williams was the odd man out last week, and I would expect the same moving forward as Wilson returns from the COVID list, primarily due to Ford and Hollins' heavy special teams roles. How Tennessee will try to win. The Titans have maintained their slow-paced, run-balanced approach on offense even after Derrick Henry was lost for the season following Week 8. 
For example, their overall pass rates with and without Henry this season stand at 52 and 54% respectively. Their pace of play sits at a 22nd ranked situation neutral 31.84 seconds per play and 25th ranked overall 28.87 seconds per play. The biggest difference between this plan of attack working and not working, as it did so effectively last season, and it largely hasn't this season, have been the drive-disrupting acts of turnovers and sacks. The Titans have given the ball away over 1.7 times per game this season on average. They have also allowed the fourth most total sacks and second highest adjusted sack rate on offense, driving situations that a run-balanced approach simply can't overcome late and long down and distance to go situations. Add in the multitude of injuries and COVID issues experienced by this team this season, and we start to see why this offense has been relatively ineffective. All of that said, the Titans currently sit in the second seed out of the AFC and only one game back of the Chiefs for the top spot overall, which is a true testament to the gritty nature of this team. The Titans are 5-2 and two in one-score games this season and have allowed just 21.7 points per game. Similar to the Dolphins, this Titans backfield has settled into a three-way timeshare consisting of Jeremy McNichols, Donta Foreman, and Dontrell Hilliard. The three have maintained this timeshare over the last three games following Tennessee's Week 13 bye. The matchup on the ground yields a below-average 4.175 net adjusted line yards metric in a similarly difficult pass funnel matchup. On top of the difficult-on-paper matchup, the Titans currently have three offensive linemen on the COVID list, including Taylor Lewan and two depth pieces. Keep an eye on their respective statuses headed into the weekend. The passing game has been a revolving door of mediocrity this season as the team has fought through injuries, COVID issues, and ineffective offensive line pass blocking. That has led to the team adopting more of a quick strike, ball-out-quick mentality through the air that has primarily run through A.J. Brown and Nick Westbrook-Akine, who is currently on the COVID list. Brown looked fully healthy last week following a three-game and four-week absence on the injured reserve, but he was held to just a 74% snap rate as the Titans continue their elevated usages of heavy personnel alignments. Keep an eye on the respective statuses of Julio Jones and NWI as the week progresses, as each is plastered to the league's COVID list currently. Should they return, expect a smattering of role players as far as pass catchers are concerned, with Chester Rogers likely joining the fold. Jeff Swaim, Michael Pruitt, and Anthony Ferkser have split snaps at the tight end position all season, and I would expect the same this week. None of the three are viable on a weekly basis as far as fantasy goes. Likeliest Game Flow It is likely we see this game environment driven by Miami's defense, who hold the largest net sack rate differential on the week. The Dolphins are third in sack rate on defense, while the Titans rank second to last on offense. Tennessee also ranks 27th in giveaways per game at 1.7, while the Dolphins have generated an average of two turnovers per game over their seven-game win streak. These large differentials are likely to lead to a game where Miami can control the time of possession, pace, flow, and environment, creating an environment that mutes overall fantasy upside from each side. On top of the likeliest game flow, we have two teams that have significant run-balanced leans as far as play calling goes against two pass-funnel opponents, giving further credence to the idea that this game starts and finishes slow. The Titans are likely to be the ones forced into increased aerial aggression as the game goes on, opening up more opportunities for turnovers to be generated by the aggressive Dolphins defensive unit. Jaguars at Patriots. Kickoff Sunday, January 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41 and a half. Game overview, as of Thursday evening, by Pappy. Patriots should start with a pass-heavy game plan. The Patriots' backfield is a timeshare. Hunter Henry dominated snaps the past two weeks. The best DFS play in this game might be the Pats' D. How Jacksonville will try to win. 
The hideous 2-13 and 13 Jaguars come into Week 17 once again the frontrunner to land the first overall pick in the draft. They need help, and not just on the field as Urban Meyer was tossed after kicking a kicker and using I'm the old ball coach as his reason. I can only imagine how many Florida and OSU students trying to make the NFL were kicked by the old ball coach. What a clown. The team isn't doing much better without Meyer, having dropped seven straight games. The Jags confirmed they are the undisputed champions of bad, losing their last two contests against the Texans and Jets. The Patriots' defense is above average against the pass, 11th in DVOA, as well as the run, 10th in DVOA, and doesn't present a path of least resistance for the Jaguars to attack. The Jags start out playing at a moderate pace, 16th situation neutral, but speed way up in the second half, second in pace, because they're always chasing points. The Jags will likely try their usual approach of coming out balanced, eventually cutting bait and passing in catch-up mode, before ultimately giving up down multiple scores late in the game. How New England will try to win. The 9-6 Patriots are coming off a crushing home loss to division rival Buffalo that cost them control of their division. The AFC is so tightly packed that the Pats fell all the way to the 6th seed and need to win their last two games to make sure they get into the playoffs. Fortunately for them, they draw a lifeless Jags team that wants nothing more than the season to end. The Jags' defense is a sieve, giving up chunks on the ground, 18th in DVOA, and getting blistered through the air, 28th in DVOA. The matchup is slightly superior through the air, and the Patriots have been highly adaptable, making it likely they implement a game plan based around passing to build the lead. Expect the Pats to come out throwing more than usual before running out the clock in the second half up by multiple scores. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a low total, 41.5, because the Jags are sporting one of the saddest team totals in recent memory. 13. A team total that low means it's highly likely that the Jags' offense struggles. That makes perfect sense based on how awful the Jags have played, and they just lost their best offensive player, James Robinson, last week. This entire game is killed by the fact that the Jags aren't going to keep up, making this one of the biggest mismatches on the slate. The most likely game flow has the Pats coming out passing before sitting on a big lead in the second half and possibly taking out their starters midway through the fourth quarter. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Raiders at Colts. Kickoff Sunday, January 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44.5. Game overview as of Thursday afternoon by Pappy. Carson Wentz is currently on the COVID list, but could come off in time to play. The Raiders are likely to lean pass heavy. Jonathan Taylor is the premier running back play on the slate. Moali Cox on 90% of the snaps last week after Jack Doyle went down with an injury. How Indianapolis will try to win. The 9-6 Colts come into Week 17 as one of the hottest groups in the league. Frank Reich's team has gone 8-2 after a 1-4 start, with their only losses coming in overtime against the Titans and by one score against the Bucks. The Colts look legitimately good operating on the back of an elite running game that has pounded even top-tier run defenses. Jonathan Taylor had 5.2 yards per carry against the Bucks. The Colts are a threat to make a deep playoff run and still have a slim chance to win their division, which will keep them playing at full speed this week. The Raiders' defense has been middling against the pass, 17th in DVOA, and poor against the run, 23rd in DVOA. That sets up beautifully for a Colts team that wants nothing more than to let Jonathan Taylor win them games. The Colts run the ball and play slow in all situations. There is no reason to expect anything different here. The Colts are going to try and pound the ball to victory while chewing up the clock. How Las Vegas will try to win. 
The 8-7 Raiders come into Week 17, hoping to end their season with a playoff appearance. They are riding a two-game winning streak and are in a four-way tie for the last wildcard spot in the AFC with three other teams, the Dolphins, Ravens, and Chargers. The Raiders are currently in fourth place out of those teams in tiebreakers, which means a loss likely eliminates them from the postseason. This is a must-win game. The Raiders play at a middling pace, 17th in situation neutral, but slow down when ahead, 26th in pace, and don't speed up much when losing, 23rd in pace, creating a lot of paths for this game to have a low number of plays. The Colts' defense has been lights out against the run, 1st in DVOA, and middling against the pass, 16th in DVOA. There isn't much reason to run against the Colts, as you're essentially just wasting plays. The Raiders have shown they want to throw the ball, and this matchup should encourage them to keep passing. Expect the Raiders to run just enough to keep the Colts' defense honest while skewing pass-heavy from the start of the game. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a low-ish total of 44.5 because both teams played a slow pace in all situations, and it's likely that we see a game without a lot of plays. However, both offenses set up well to attack the relative weakness of their opponents. There is every reason to think the Colts, especially if Carson Wentz plays, will have a high drive success rate. Even though the Colts' defense is strong, the Raiders are likely to have at least some success moving the ball through the air. The main obstacle to this game taking off is time-crunching drives, not offenses failing. The most likely game flow has the Colts taking control of this game with their running game and the Raiders trying to keep up through the air, ultimately falling behind late and losing by a touchdown. Giants at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, January 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 37. Game overview. As of 12.30 Eastern on Thursday. By Pappy. This is a poor game environment. Justin Fields has his two highest pass attempt games the last two weeks. David Montgomery will likely be popular. The Giants are planning on playing two QBs. How New York will try to win. The 4-11 Giants come into this game floundering at the end of a sad year. They got blown out again last week, failing to top 10 points and playing two QBs. Quoting my edge right up from last week, the G-Men fired their inept offensive coordinator mid-season, lost Saquon Barkley for six weeks, he may never be the same, have a pack of glass figurines at wide receiver, and place Daniel Jones on the IR with mysterious neck injury that wasn't severe enough to drive him from the game in which he sustained it, but was bad enough to end his season. That all still holds true, and adding to that, they've now seen Jake Fromm, who looks like a player barely sticking around the NFL for a reason. Johnny Manziel retweeted fans asking if he's available. Ouch. This week, the G-Men get a Bears defense that has been falling apart down the stretch, ranking 26th in overall DVOA. They sport a beatable ranking of 21st in DVOA against the run, and a poor 26th in DVOA against the pass. The Bears can be attacked coming and going. Fortunately for the Bears, the Giants are a mess. The Giants are currently floating the idea of playing both Mike Glennon and Jake Fromm at quarterback. They aren't entirely sure about the play calling either, as supposedly it will still fall mostly on Freddie Kitchens, but will also have some collaborative elements. The Giants still play quickly, 10th in situation neutral pace, but that could change if the coaching staff starts to hide the QB. Expect the Giants to keep flying by the seat of their pants and hoping for a miracle. How Chicago will try to win. The 5-10 Bears are eliminated from playoff contention, and Matt Nagy might be a lame duck coach. Earlier in the year, it was reported that his job was on the line if the Bears lost on Thanksgiving Day, so it's reasonable to think Nagy has the hottest seat in the NFL. Nagy's seat is scorching for a reason. His defense grossly underperformed, and his offense has looked inept, with Justin Fields showing limited development as an NFL quarterback. Allen Robinson has also been wasted. 
It's easy to forget that A-Rob is only 28 years old and has never played with a good QB in a friendly passing scheme. Nagy has woefully used one of the purest talents at wide receiver, and hopefully, Robinson will end up in a good spot before his career is over. Imagine A-Rob on the Packers next to Adams. The Giants' defense has been thrashed on the ground, 29th in DVOA, and through the air, 31st in DVOA, presenting nothing but paths of least resistance. The Bears can attack in whatever manner they choose. The Bears stuck to the ground most of the year, but the past two weeks, after being eliminated from playoff contention, Nagy has been more aggressive, letting Fields throw 33 and 39 times his two highest pass attempt games of the season. Fields isn't certain to play, but if he does, expect Nagy to give him an opportunity to look good and possibly save his job for one more year. Likeliest game flow. This game has a comically low total, 37.5, because even though these are two of the worst defenses in the league, they are also two of the worst offenses. Bad offenses are bad offenses for a reason, and they aren't made good just because they're playing a poor defense. Neither offense is sure of who is playing QB, and the Giants are spinning the idea of splitting time between two players. Expect both offenses to struggle with the game likely to be determined by a defensive score. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Chiefs at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, January 2nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 51. Game overview. As of Thursday night, by Hilo. The playoff picture is crystal clear for the Chiefs. Win out and secure the top spot and only buy out of the AFC. Lose and open the door for the Titans to nab the top spot. That seems insane considering everything the Titans have been through this season. I digress. Although unlikely, the Bengals are also currently in the running for the top playoff seat out of the AFC, currently two games behind the Chiefs for that honor. They can end the season anywhere from the top seed to out of the playoffs. The Chiefs returned most of the nine players that were on the COVID list last week, including kicker Harrison Butker and tight end Travis Kelsey. Nobody of note remains on the list as of Thursday night. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has yet to practice this week with a shoulder injury, possibly opening the door for Darrell Williams to take over as the lead back for the Chiefs. He would be backed up by Derek Gore should CEH miss. How Kansas City will try to win. The Chiefs surprisingly hold the league's 10th highest overall rush rate over the previous four weeks of play, games against the Steelers, Chargers, Raiders, and Broncos. During their nine-game win streak, Kansas City has held a much more natural 60% pass rate, which drops to 58% with playing with a lead over that same time frame. Their situation-neutral pass rate, first and second down with the score within seven points, during that nine-game win streak stands at 61%. I wanted to highlight most of their situational play-calling tendencies during this win streak to emphasize the fact that this team is still one of the most aggressively pass-heavy teams in the league which should remain the case in as close to a must-win game as possible heading into the postseason. Furthering that notion is the possibility of an absence from starting running back Clyde Edwards-Alaire, who has yet to practice this week with his shoulder injury. Finally, the Bengals present a pass-funnel matchup, as although their DVOA values are both in the middle of the pack, they've allowed the fourth lowest yards per carry while allowing the fourth most yards per pass. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire appears headed for a game-time decision at absolute best, considering he has yet to practice this week. Should he miss, we are likely to see Daryl Williams step into his vacated lead-back role, likely seeing 65-75% to of the offensive snaps in the process. He would be backed up by Derek Gore, who has only seven targets on the season, meaning Williams should be viewed as much more than a yardage and touchdown back here, again, assuming CEH misses. 
we're likely to see a relative three-way split in running back opportunities should CEH play. The matchup yields a well below average 4.08 net adjusted line yards metric against a Bengals defense allowing 23.9 fantasy points per game and the second most targets to opposing backfields. Williams has games of 25, 23, and 19 running back opportunities on the season, so we can feel confident in his workload should CEH miss. Tyreek Hill played only 42% of the offensive snaps in his first game back from the COVID list in Week 16. He reportedly lost 8 pounds with the illness and was struggling through the entire game just to muster his 29 offensive snaps. With another week between he and his illness, expect Hill to be more involved this week. All of that is extremely notable because it highlights the varying levels of effects this virus has on different individuals, which adds another layer of variance to this already crazy season because we don't get any information from teams regarding individual health outside of what is reported to the league through protocols. That said, Travis Kelsey was activated from the league's COVID list on Wednesday. While he will get a full week of practice, we have no idea how well he is feeling nor how his snap rate will look in his first game back from the virus. We'll discuss more on this below, but it is something we need to keep in mind as we fight through information this week, and something that I haven't seen discussed much around the industry. Behind the top two players from his pass-catching core, expect Byron Pringle, Nicole Hardman, and Demarcus Robinson to remain involved to varying degrees, with Pringle the likeliest to see his elevated role continue. The Bengals present the rare case of a defense allowing higher-than-league average completion rates and yards per reception, keeping the upside high for the primary pass catchers from the Chiefs. Furthermore, the Bengals have faced the second-most running back targets in the league. How Cincinnati will try to win The Bengals have alternated two-game win streaks and two-game losing streaks over their previous eight games, which has been enough to keep them in the third seed out of the AFC heading into the final two weeks of the season. That said, the Bengals can mathematically achieve the one seed in the AFC with wins in their last two games, and they can be mathematically eliminated with losses in their last two games. Quite the range of potential outcomes here. As such, this game represents the pinnacle of both Zach Taylor's coaching career and Joe Burrow's playing career. During the second half of the season, the Bengals rank in the middle of the pack in rush pass rates overall when playing with a lead and when trailing. Basically, this team has been extremely balanced on offense all season. Their slow pace of play, 30th ranked situation neutral and 31st ranked overall, has led them to averaging only 61.2 offensive plays per game. For reference, that is the same as the Packers have run per game this season. Because Zach Taylor is regarded as one of the most adaptable up-and-coming play callers in the league, we should expect the Bengals to attack the paths of least resistance against the Chiefs. Those areas would include rushes, passes to running backs and tight ends, and short to intermediate passes over the middle of the field to wide receivers. We'll revisit this idea below. Joe Mixon has seen 18 or more running back opportunities in every game since week 8 on a between lead back and workhorse weekly snap rate. Expect more of the same here with clear paths to 30 plus running back opportunities should the game environment facilitate increased involvement. Behind Mixon, Samaje Pirine should mix in for 15 to 30 percent of the offensive snaps, again highly dependent on actual game flow. The matchup on the ground yields a well above average 4.475 net adjusted line yards metric and presents one of the aforementioned paths of least resistance against the Chiefs. Furthermore, the Chiefs have faced the fifth most running back targets on the season, raising both the expected floor and expected ceiling for Mixon. The pass game has been dominated by rookie wide receiver Jamar Chase and second-year wide receiver T. Higgins, with Tyler Boyd approaching near every down status as well. The Bengals run 11 personnel at a 76% clip on the season, which has jumped to 82% since Week 8. C.J. Ozoma and Drew Sample split snaps at a 65-45 clip last week after three straight weeks of 80% or more for Uzoma. 
Expect personnel alignments to be driven by game flow in this one, with the team likelier to run more heavy sets in neutral to positive game scripts. As mentioned above, another path of least resistance against the Chiefs is through the short to intermediate middle of the field, slightly raising the expectation for Boyd and Higgins, the two players that run the most of those routes. Likeliest Game Flow You'd be hard-pressed to find a second-to-last NFL game that carried more playoff implications than this one, giving each team all the motivation they need. Furthering that discussion is the wide range of potential outcomes as far as playoff seeding is concerned for each of these teams and what has become an extremely crowded AFC playoff picture. The Chiefs can end up anywhere from the top seed to the sixth seed, while the Bengals can end up anywhere from the top seed to out of the playoffs entirely. Considering how each of these teams are built, how each of them respond to varying game environments, and how each offense and defense has performed up to this point in the season, the flow, pace, and environments of this game have the widest range of outcomes on the week, so there really is no point in anchoring down on what the likeliest scenario is. That said, each potential game flow carries varying players that should be regarded as optimal, and because each offense is highly concentrated, players from this game can be used in rosters for all potential game flows. Again, something to keep in mind when narrowing down the top game environments on the slate. Spoiler alert, this game is one of the top two or three game environments. The Eagles at Washington kick off Sunday, January 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.5. Game Overview by Hilo The Eagles currently have five players on the COVID list, most notably left guard Landon Dickerson and defensive end Derek Barnett. Washington are down to just one player, depth cornerback Daryl Roberts, on the league's COVID list after being one of the most affected teams over the previous two weeks. Washington has stated that they intend to give Kyle Allen some run at quarterback in an attempt to evaluate future plans at the position. Philadelphia currently sit in the seventh and final playoff spot in the NFC and can ensure a playoff berth by winning their final two games. Washington has not been mathematically eliminated yet, but would need to win out and receive a ton of help to make the playoffs. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win Philadelphia leads the league in rush rate over the second half of the season by a massive margin. Their rush rate since Week 8 stands at a whopping 60%, a full 5% more than the Colts, the next closest team. They have gone 6-2 and two over that same time, with their only losses coming by 6 points against the Giants and 3 points against the Chargers. Furthermore, the Eagles have scored 24 or more points in all but one of those games. The problem for us is that the heavy rushing load has been split by no fewer than 4 players during that stretch. Quarterback Jalen Hurts and running backs Miles Sanders, Jordan Howard, and one of Boston Scott or Kenneth Gainwell. Philadelphia ranks in the top half of the league in points allowed per game, play at a top-five situation-neutral pace of play, and are a net-neutral in turnover differential this season. As alluded to above, the emphasis on this offense is on the rush, and it's been that way since this team started 2-5. Their offensive line ranks second in adjusted line yards, first in stuffed rate, fourth in second-level yards generated, and seventh in open field yards generated. The matchup yields a well-above-average 4.565 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Washington defense allowing a moderate 22.7 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields, primarily due to a below-average 3.95 yards allowed per carry to opposing backs. Even with the elevated pace of play, the Eagles run 62.9 plays per game this season, which ranks 16th in the league. 
That gives us a solid baseline expectation of 32 to 36 total rush attempts here, with room for more should the game flow allow. Of those 32 to 36 rush attempts, expect 8 to 12 from Hertz, 12 to 15 from Sanders. Update, Sanders has been ruled out for Week 17 with a broken hand suffered in Week 16, meaning Jordan Howard should step into his vacated lead role, backed up by some combination of Boston Scott and Kenneth Gainwell. It is likeliest we see Howard and Scott split early down work at a 60-40 clip, with Gainwell the most likely to be utilized in the obvious passing down role. It is also possible we see Hertz utilized more heavily out of the backfield. 8-10 to 10 for Howard, and a possibility for a handful of touches for Boston Scott or Kenneth Gainwell. One final consideration is the fact that Washington has seeded the third most quarterback rushing yards and most quarterback rushing scores this season. You have to go all the way back to Week 7 to find a game where Jalen Hurts attempted more than just 31 pass attempts, and there were only two games over that stretch where he attempted more than 26 pass attempts. Of the 164 pass attempts in the seven games since Week 8, Hurts missed Week 13, Devonta Smith has been targeted at a 22.6% rate, and Dallas Goddard has been targeted at a 23.8% rate, leaving a modest 10.9 targets per game to be split between Kez Watkins, Jalen Rager, Greg Ward, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, backup tight ends Jack Stoll and Tyree Jackson, and the running backs. In my best Yoda voice, a condensed offense this is not. How Washington will try to win. Although not mathematically eliminated from the postseason just yet, Washington has apparently conceded that they will not be representing the NFC with three teams from the NFC East in the playoffs. Dallas has clinched a playoff spot while Philadelphia currently sits in the seventh spot. As such, it isn't entirely apparent that Washington wants to try to win this game, evidenced by the reports out of Washington stating that the team is likely to utilize multiple quarterbacks this week as they look towards the future. Expect an inefficient and conservative Kyle Allen to see snaps in direct backup of an inefficient and conservative Taylor Heineke. A whole lot of meh here. The one saving grace for this offense is the fact that the same conservative nature of the offense overall leads to the areas of the field that the Eagles allow production to, short to intermediate. That said, Washington ranks just 18th in drive success rate on the offense, while the Eagles rank 19th, so that isn't exactly a ringing endorsement. Finally, Washington ranks 7th in the league in overall rush rates during the second half of the season, and Philadelphia ranks 12th in DVOA against the run, while 21st against the pass, primarily short area work allowed. Antonio Gibson played just 37% of the offensive snaps last week after aggravating his turf toe injury. And that is in addition to his hip and shin ailments that he has been playing through for most of the season. That introduces a good deal of uncertainty surrounding the likely snap and opportunity split of this backfield. With J.D. McKissick on IR, we should expect Jarrett Patterson and Jonathan Williams to soak up any backfield work vacated by Gibson, who was downgraded from a limited participant on Wednesday to a DNP on Thursday. The matchup yields a modest 4.165 net adjusted line yards metric against an Eagles defense allowing 25.0 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Taylor Heineke averages 7.8 intended air yards per pass attempt this season, while Kyle Allen is all the way down at 7.1, indicating how conservative this offense has been forced to be this year behind highly inefficient quarterback play. Terry McLaurin is now the only pass catcher that plays in a near-every-down role, 
as Ricky Seals-Jones and Jonathan Bates have split snaps over the previous three weeks. Adam Humphreys has an established role as the slot-wide receiver, but plays 55-65% to of the offensive snaps on a weekly basis, and the wide receiver 2 role has been a mishmash of both production and opportunity. All of DeAndre Carter, Diami Brown, Cam Sims, Max Mill, and Curtis Samuel have rotated through that final wide receiver spot, but none of them have taken a strong portion of the opportunity. It's basically McLaurin or bust if targeting a member of this pass-catching core. The matchup against the Eagles should be considered net neutral, as they allow an above-average catch rate but the lowest yards per reception in the league. Expect McLaurin to see a good bit of lockdown corner Darius Slay, who has seen a career resurgence this season, low 47.3 completion rate allowed in coverage, with more interceptions than touchdowns allowed. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest we see the Eagles succeed on the offensive side of the ball, in one way or another, have scored 24 points or more in all but one game since Week 8, and 27 or more points in all but two games since Week 8. But that production is highly likely to be spread out enough to render all players from the Eagles borderline useless to us from a fantasy perspective. We'll cover more of this, but MME shots can be taken on Jalen Hurts, Jordan Howard, Devonta Smith, or Dallas Goddard, but the remainder of this offense should largely be left alone. Because we can be fairly certain that the Eagles will achieve some level of success offensively, we can also be fairly certain that Washington will be forced into increased pass rates as the game plays out. The problem here is that the Eagles allow the lowest yards per completion in the league at just 9.0 while allowing a greater than league average completion rate of 68.57%, 28th in the league, meaning Washington will likely be forced to march the field through sustained drives, 18th ranked drive success rate, and actually score when they enter the red zone, 54.55% red zone touchdown rate, 25th in the league, two areas they have largely struggled with this season. On top of that, we're expecting multiple quarterbacks to be used from Washington this week as they look towards the future. This all comes together to form a likeliest game flow and game environment that the Eagles control throughout, bringing their elevated rush rates to the forefront of consideration when breaking down this game. In turn, this game has very little chance of opening up into something required to ship GPPs this week. The Rams at the Ravens kick off Sunday, January 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Hilo The Ravens are playing for their playoff lives. They currently sit in 8th place in the AFC, having lost the tiebreaker to the Dolphins based on conference win percentage. Their clearest path to the postseason is by winning out and the Dolphins losing. The Rams currently occupy the three seed in the NFC. They would need to win out and get losses from the Packers and the Cowboys in order to nab the one seed, and could fall as far as the five seed over the final two weeks. The Rams currently have three players on the league's COVID list, most notably the ageless left tackle Andrew Whitworth. The Ravens are down to just three players on the COVID list, with no players occupying major roles. Lamar Jackson sat out practice on Thursday after practicing on a limited basis with a noticeable limp on Wednesday. Tyler Huntley was activated off the COVID list. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams will be fighting for playoff seeding this week, with everything from the one seed to the five seed, and potential first-round road matchup with the Bucks on tap, a possibility. As such, we should consider them one of the more motivated teams this week, likely fighting tooth and nail to come out on top. 
We've seen the Rams transition to much more balanced offense during the latter half of the season, with everything from positive game script to COVID and injury issues to health preservation the likely causes. That said, this team is now one of the healthier teams in the league, and we already spoke to their motivation this week. All of that was written to highlight the fact that although this team has been afforded the opportunity to adapt a more conservative offensive approach of late, that may or may not be the case this week against a desperate opponent playing for the postseason lives. What we do know is that the matchup tilts toward the air against a Ravens team ranked 6th in DVOA against the run, fewest yards allowed per rush, and 30th against the pass, most yards allowed per pass. The Rams' backfield has left little to the imagination of late, with Sony Michelle taking a stranglehold on both snap rate and running back opportunities over the previous month of play. During that time, Michelle has handled 97%, 100%, 72%, and 90% of the offensive snaps for the Rams, leading to opportunity counts of 28, 21, 20, and 31, and his salary has climbed to the unhealthy levels of 5,800. Kidding, that's insanely cheap for a running back seeing that much work. Like, that kind of workload would rival Najee Harris for the most touches per game amongst running backs if extrapolated to fit the entire season. The matchup is far from ideal, yielding a below-average 4.15 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Ravens defense allowing only 22.5 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Very much a strength-on-strength matchup here. Whatever is left behind Sony is likeliest to be filled by Daryl Henderson, and possibly Cam Akers, who is looking to make a triumphant return from a torn Achilles suffered before the season started. This is Cooper Cup's world. We're all just watching it unfold. Cup leads the league in team target market share at a ridiculous 33.1% and ranks in the top 90% in almost any receiving metric you look at this season. The glaring one he doesn't is ADOT, where his modest 8.3 value ranks in the bottom 20% of the league. Odell Beckham Jr.'s return to health has given the Rams more flexibility to operate a dynamic offense as far as personnel alignments are concerned. In games, the Rams are forced to the air at an increased rate. OBJ and Van Jefferson join Cup as every-down wide receivers. In games the Rams are able to control throughout, they have adopted a more balanced offense built around an increase in 12 personnel alignments, bolstering the efficiency of their zone-based run-blocking scheme. We've seen both Kendall Blayton and Bryson Hopkins join Tyler Higbee at tight end for 25-30% 12 personnel alignments in these such games. Regardless of game flow, Higby is on the field for nearly every offensive snap, but is in a route on only 52% of his snaps that come on pass plays. How Baltimore will try to win Baltimore has endured some of the worst injury and COVID luck of any team in recent memory, forcing their hand into increased pass rates and regular shootouts. This week appears to be no different as their secondary remains decimated. Anthony Everett and Tavon Young have yet to practice this week. Lamar Jackson was downgraded to a DNP after practicing Wednesday in a limited fashion with a noticeable limp. And Devin DuVernay is attempting to return from a one-game absence. DNP on Wednesday, limited on Thursday. We very well could see another game of a thinned-out secondary and a backup quarterback this week. Over the last month of play, the time frame in which the Ravens have been hit the hardest with injuries and COVID, Baltimore leads the league in overall pass rate at 66%, a stark contrast to their 25th-ranked pass rate over the first 12 weeks of the season. They have continued to play at a slow pace of play, checking in with the second-slowest offensive unit this season, a mark that jumps to a 14th-ranked 27.34 seconds per play in the second half of games, further indication of the difficulty this team has had in the first half of games this year. 
There are still a lot of moving pieces regarding how the Ravens are likeliest to attack here, but we can assume elevated pass rates based purely on their opponent, regardless of who is active or not. The ground game has gained a bit of clarity over the preceding six weeks, after Le'Veon Bell was released and Tyson Williams was phased out of the offense entirely, creating a true 1A, 1B situation between Devontae Freeman and Latavius Murray. That said, this backfield has been affected heavily by the team routinely finding themselves in catch-up survival mode, hamstringing the usage and effectiveness along the way. The matchup yields the lowest net-adjusted line yards metric on the week at just 3.755, relegating both participants to bet on outlier efficiency and touchdown plays. The field should be privy to the fact that backup quarterback Tyler Huntley targets Mark Andrews heavily this week, removing some of the hidden allure we attacked so forcefully a couple weeks back. That said, Andrews has seen target counts of 10, 10, and 13 with Huntley throwing the football. The pure matchup is less than ideal against a defense allowing just 12.2 fantasy points per game to opposing tight ends, with Max Williams, of all people, scoring the most against this defensive unit in the year, 17.6. Devin DuVernay is looking to make his return from a one-game absence this week, who would be the player most likely to man the slot for the Ravens, assuming he plays, leaving Rashad Bateman to handle most of the work opposite Marquise Brown on the perimeter. Bateman has played his heaviest snap rates of the season over the previous two weeks, 93% and 81%, and has quickly supplanted incumbent perimeter starter Sammy Watkins, who was held to only three offensive snaps in his first game back from a one-game absence last week. DuVernay's return would likely render James Proche and Tylen Wallace irrelevant. Likeliest Game Flow The actual game flow is likeliest to be driven by the Rams here, who are clearly the better team on both sides of the ball. On the other hand, it is likeliest up to the Ravens to determine the pace and game environment, as this game is unlikely to turn into a back-and-forth shootout unless they are able to achieve some level of success on the scoreboard. Furthering that assertion is the fact that these two teams are on relatively opposite trajectories as far as health, play-calling, and results are considered over the previous month of play. As in, the Ravens have been forced into a hyper-aggressive aerial approach recently while the Rams have settled toward the middle of the league in rush rates over the past month of play. We must also consider the extreme pass-funnel nature of the Ravens' defense in this analysis, which is likelier than not to lead to an increase to the modest pass rate seen out of the Rams recently. All of this comes together to give this game one of the better shots at developing into one of the had-to-have-it games we hunt so aggressively here at OWS, providing a solid game stack situation to take advantage of, especially if this game appears to be headed for low combinatorial ownership. Not likely, but I haven't looked at the expected ownership just yet. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Texans at the 49ers kick off Sunday, January 2nd at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.0. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Houston is on the road after a huge upset over the Chargers while shorthanded. San Francisco can't win their division, but can clinch a playoff spot with a win and a little bit of help. Jimmy Garoppolo is unlikely to play in this game, setting the stage for Trey Lance to come up big in his first home start. San Francisco has a huge edge in the running game and will likely lean heavily into that strength to protect Lance from having to do too much. How Houston will try to win 
the Texans came up with one of the bigger upsets of the year in Week 16. Despite having 20 players on the COVID list and being nearly double-digit home underdogs to the Chargers, Houston outplayed Los Angeles in almost every facet of the game and walked away with a convincing victory. Helping their cause was the fact that the Chargers were also hit hard by COVID absences and struggled on the road with missing many of their team's leaders. This week, Houston heads out west to face a 49ers team that has scored over 30 points in each of their last three home games. San Francisco also has a much more stout defense that is terrific against the run and getting healthier in their pass defense. The 49ers are also in a must-win type of situation, and there is almost no chance the Texans can bank on an off game from San Francisco here, as they will be prepared and amped up to play. There is no secret sauce for Houston to try here, nor anything extraordinary in how they play that we should expect. They are a team that lacks high-end talent and plays at a pace that is close to the league average while also having near-the-league average run-pass ratio. I do think there is a decent chance the Texans come out aggressive early in this game. If they are able to score some points early, it would relieve pressure on their own offense and allow them to milk the clock and run the ball more freely, while also forcing Trey Lance to make more plays and be more than a game manager. How San Francisco Will Try to Win Houston has a bottom-five rush defense, and San Francisco has a top-five rush offense. San Francisco is starting a rookie QB who ran the ball 16 times in his only previous start, which was on the road against a much more talented team. There really isn't a ton of minutia that we need to worry ourselves about for this section in the game. San Francisco is going to run the ball and run it a lot in this game. Eli Mitchell, who has been the 49ers' best running back this season, has returned to practice and seems likely to play. Between Mitchell, Lance, Jeff Wilson, and Debo Samuel, we can expect a lot of creative formations and misdirections that will all lead to a similar place. 49ers players making big plays against an overmatched and confused defense. Consider the fact that San Francisco is PFF's number one graded run-blocking team, and Houston is the 31st graded defense in tackling. Putting everything above together, the 49ers will confuse and stretch this defense horizontally with a lot of weapons they need to worry about. Then, the 49ers will use their elite scheme and run blocking to get their ball carriers to the second level of the defense. At that point, the elite runners and tackle breakers of the 49ers will encounter one of the worst tackling units in the league. Trey Lance has not looked good as a passer this season, but the 49ers won't ask him to do that much to start this game and are unlikely to need to ask him to as the game goes on. Likeliest Game Flow The Texans are likely to struggle to move the ball, and the 49ers are likely to impose their will and bully the Texans with their multifaceted running game. We should expect the 49ers to come out focused and energized, taking control of this game early and pulling away to a comfortable margin by halftime or shortly thereafter. The greatest threat to this game scenario would be mistakes by Lance, but as discussed previously, the 49ers should be able to simplify things and take a lot off his plate in this setup. San Francisco is unlikely to have any one player with a crazy amount of volume, but as a whole, they should run ragged over this Texas defense with three or four players having solid outings on the ground. Both teams play at a bottom 10 situation neutral pace, and with the 49ers likely to run the ball at a very high rate and the Texans likely to struggle to move the ball, meaning short drives and more 49ers possessions, it is likely that this game moves very quickly and has lower play volume than most games. The Broncos at the Chargers kick off Sunday, January 2nd at 4.05 p.m. Eastern. 
with an over-under of 45.5. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 This is a divisional rematch from a game a few weeks ago when the Broncos beat the Chargers 28-13 in Denver. The Broncos controlled that game with their running game and defense, making the Chargers one-dimensional and making things difficult for them on both sides of the ball. Both teams are currently on the outside looking in for the AFC playoff picture, and whichever team loses this game is likely done. Denver needs to win their last two games and get a lot of help to make the playoffs. If Los Angeles wins their last two games, they will still need a little help somewhere, but have a very strong chance that they would get in the playoffs with a 10-7 record. How Denver will try to win The Broncos want to hide Drew Locke. In his only start last week against a mediocre Raiders defense, the Broncos ran only 40 offensive plays and managed 158 total yards. They struggled to move the ball at all and managed only 18 rushing yards with the Raiders selling out to stop the run. Vic Fangio had no interest in cutting Drew Locke loose to make them pay for this strategy, so the Broncos just engaged in a punting battle that they ended up losing. The Raiders' complete inability to separate themselves offensively allowed Denver to stick with that strategy, as the Broncos just tried to survive an ugly game rather than going out and winning it. The Broncos are a slow-paced team, 27th in the league in situation-neutral pace of play, who want to lean on their running game. The Chargers have the worst run defense in the league, and that should play right into Denver's hands. Los Angeles couldn't even stop the Texans from having success running the ball, so it is unlikely they will be able to stop the Broncos' backfield. If Denver can get 35 to 40 rushing attempts from their backs with any level of efficiency, while keeping Drew Locke from throwing the ball over 25 times, Vic Fangio will be a very happy man. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win On paper, the Broncos are more easily attacked on the ground than through the air. In theory, this would be a game where we could possibly expect to see Los Angeles run the ball more than usual. In reality, this is a team coming off an embarrassing loss and whose season is on the line. In spots like this, teams usually want to lean into their own strengths and know that if they go down, they will do it on their own terms. We saw something similar last week with the Bills as they put the ball in Josh Allen's hands and had a pass-heavy attack against the Patriots despite New England's top three pass defense. Los Angeles passes at the fifth highest rate in the league and plays at a top 10 situation neutral pace. Despite the tough matchup and last week's poor outing, we should expect the Chargers to be who they are and put the ball in Justin Herbert's hands here. The returns of Austin Eckler, Mike Williams, and possibly Jalen Guyton mean this offense should operate at full strength with their season on the line. Brandon Staley is one of the sharper young coaches in the game, and it is highly unlikely that he does anything other than riding his franchise QB as far as he will take him. Likeliest Game Flow While this game has a respectable total of 45.5, we always want to keep in mind the range of outcomes for a given game rather than just the raw number Vegas gives us. The Broncos have played 15 games this season and have only been part of one game that combined for over 50 points, Week 6 versus Las Vegas. There has been only one other game that went over the total for this week's game, and nine times this season a Denver game has had 40 or less points scored. This is an important context to consider because the schemes and personnel of these teams are set up for Denver to control the game flow, even if they may not end up winning. Denver's defense is well-equipped to slow down the high-volume, usually explosive Chargers passing offense. 
On the other side of the ball, Denver wants to control the game on the ground, and the Chargers couldn't even get stops against a league-worst run defense of the Texans, with backup offensive linemen, no less. It wouldn't be shocking for this game to approach, or even slightly surpass, the implied team and game totals, but Denver will be able to run the ball with success and string together long drives while also making things difficult for Los Angeles to move the ball quickly down the field, and making it difficult for them to score touchdowns. Denver has the fourth-best defense at preventing TDs in the red zone. This makes it likely that if this game meets expectations, it will be a hard-earned journey that gets there at the end, while also making it likely that this game could significantly disappoint and finish with something like a 20-13 final score. There appears to be a much greater downside to the game flow than there is upside. The Panthers at the Saints kick off Sunday, January 2nd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 38.0. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 A lot has changed for both teams since the Panthers stomped the Saints in Week 2. The Panthers are a lame-duck team with nothing left to play for, who have turned back to Sam Darnold as their starting quarterback. The Saints are getting a lot of players back from the COVID list and still have a good chance to make the playoffs if they can win their last two games, both very winnable, and get a little bit of help. Both teams should have relatively predictable game plans, with the Saints much more likely to find success. How Carolina will try to win The Panthers have lost five consecutive games by an average of 16 points. Their defense has given up an average of 30 points during that stretch, but that has looked worse than it actually has been due to the turnovers and ineptitude of the offense. Carolina's defense has held every team during this streak under 400 total yards of offense, while their offense has failed to get anything going. Now they are turning the keys back over to Sam Darnold for a two-week audition for next year's starting job. Chuba Hubbard has been one of the least efficient running backs in the league this year, and the Panthers' offensive line has been a bottom 10 unit in terms of run blocking by most metrics, including PFF's grades. Facing a Saints defense that is getting back to close to full strength, and is ranked number one in run defense DVOA and number two in run defense PFF grade, it seems likely that Carolina will have little to no success running the ball, and may not even try besides a few token keep-them-honest runs. I don't expect an extremely up-tempo or aggressive downfield approach from the Panthers, but an increase from their season average of 59% situation-neutral pass rate does seem likely with a focus on short-area routes that will give Darnold easy reads and get the ball out of his hands quickly. How New Orleans will try to win Taysom Hill is active again, putting a merciful end to the Ian Book era. The Saints' offense on Monday night was the lump of coal in the stocking for any avid football fan, and hopefully you didn't have anything at stake that forced you to watch it. There isn't much we can take away from that game for future predictions other than knowing life is precious and we will never get that time back. With Hill active, the Saints are likely to revert back to the offense we saw from them in his three starts prior to going on the COVID list. This matchup against the Panthers also presents some run-funnel tendencies as they have a very good pass rush and secondary, but a very beatable run defense. The Saints will gladly attack with a dual-threat running attack from Hill and Alvin Kamara, with a little bit of Mark Ingram mixed in. Hill hasn't shown a ton of ability making throws down the field, but will spread the ball around when he does throw it, and will try to get the ball to Kamara and his receivers in space where they can make plays after the catch. 
The Saints have a huge advantage on the defensive side of the ball, meaning they will likely try to limit the chances of Hill making mistakes that flip the game script on them and will instead be very conservative with a run-heavy approach. Likeliest Game Flow The Saints are going to run the ball and likely have success doing it. However, their predictability and a familiar opponent make it likely that they will have to work hard for points. On the other side of the ball, Carolina will almost certainly be unable to run the ball and will have to rely on Sam Darnold's arm to make things happen. Basically, this game sets up as a defensive battle with clear paths of least resistance on both sides, and the Saints have a much greater chance of being able to exploit their path than the Panthers will have. The likeliest game flow will be the Saints gradually taking control of this game and forcing the Panthers to become more aggressive. When that happens, if the Panthers are able to make a couple of big plays and keep things close, they may have a shot. If they are unable to do so, the Saints' defense will likely be teeing off on Darnold, and things could get out of hand. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Cards at Cowboys. Kickoff Sunday, January 2nd, 425 p.m. Eastern, over under 51 and a half. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86. This game has a lot of obstacles to it being the shootout everyone has hoped it would be since before the season began. Arizona is struggling mightily down the stretch after opening the year as the hottest team in the league. Dallas can get the number one seed in the NFC by winning their last two games and having the Packers lose one game. Arizona has secured a playoff berth, but could end up as high as the number two seed if they win their last two games, or as low as the number six seed. How Arizona will try to win. Arizona's offense has been reeling recently due to inconsistent personnel and an inability to make big plays. While this offense has been one of the highest scoring units this season, they have really struggled since losing DeAndre Hopkins for the season with a knee injury. While Hopkins was not dominating games or seeing a crazy target share, His presence commanded defensive attention and put the rest of their receiving core in roles that suited their strengths. The effect of Hopkins' absence on the offense as a whole is a perfect case study in the difference between what players do on a stat sheet and the effect they have on the field. When Hopkins was active, everyone in the receiving core was positioned well for what they do best, but now everyone is being asked to do just a little bit too much and to do it while seeing more defensive attention. James Conner has not practiced this week after missing last week's practices and game. His absence also eliminates a smash-mouth element that the Cardinals don't really have another way to get into their offense. This means that assuming Connor misses, the Cardinals will have to rely on Kyler Murray and Chase Edmonds for rushing production. Both of them are players who make plays with speed and getting in space, but are unlikely to break a bunch of tackles or move a pile. Cliff Kingsbury has been uninspiring in his play calling and play designs, which will likely leave Arizona spreading the field and relying on Kyler Murray to make things happen to keep up offensively. Arizona is likely to have a similar approach to what they did in Week 16 against the Colts, passing at a 2-to-1 ratio compared to running plays. These passes are likely to be primarily short and conservative in nature, true to the horizontal raid reputation that Kingsbury has earned. Arizona may also turn to no huddle and faster tempo in this game as a means of slowing down a ferocious Dallas pass rush. How Dallas will try to win Dallas is fresh off their best offensive performance of the season on Sunday night when they dominated a lame-duck Washington team who is missing a lot of key players. While that game could not have set up better for them, we should be careful not to dismiss what a game like that can do to the mentality of a team. The Cowboys locked up their division last week and still have a shot at the number one seed in the NFC. 
Another interesting note for Dallas is that they have averaged an astonishing 44 points per game over their last three home games. On the other side, Arizona's defense has been terrific for most of the season, but has given up 27.3 points per game over the last three weeks. This is a beatable unit at this point in the season. Since sustaining a leg injury before their Week 7 bye, Dak Prescott looked as healthy as he has in months on Sunday night. He was throwing with confidence to all levels of the field and making plays with his legs, something that the broadcast crew was quick to notice and point out. Dallas is lethal in both their running game and passing game. They can stay balanced and keep defenses honest without playing suboptimally. Arizona's defense is solid in all areas, leaving the method of attack up to Dallas. I believe that with their confidence at such a high level, Dallas will be aggressive early in this game, hoping to build a lead and let their ferocious pass rush tee off on a shorthanded Cardinals offense. The Dallas running game should have success in high leverage situations with multiple capable backs and PFF's number two graded run blocking unit. Likeliest game flow. While this game has the highest total on the slate, it should be noted that there is a greater systemic risk involved than the numbers imply. The Dallas defense has been very good all season and nearly dominant since Thanksgiving. However, we also need to acknowledge that during that four-game stretch, during which no team has scored over 20 points against Dallas, the Cowboys have played the anemic offenses of the Saints, Giants, and Washington twice. Recently, Arizona has not operated at the high level of efficiency we saw early in the season, but this is still a much better unit than any of those Dallas has seen over the last month. We should also note that Dallas plays at the fastest pace in the league, and Arizona is a top 10 team in pace themselves. During their three-game losing streak, the Cardinals have allowed Matthew Stafford, Jared Goff, and Carson Wentz to all throw for over 8 yards per pass attempt. However, due to the efficiency they have seen and the Cardinals falling behind, none of the three passers attempted over 30 passes. This seems like a reasonable scenario based on what we know about these teams and how they will attempt to play early in this game. The likeliest game flow is Dallas taking control of this game with aggressive offense early, while the Cardinals continue their spread out but conservative offensive approach until falling behind and being forced to become more aggressive. If Dallas builds a lead, they will lean more into their running game while still allowing Dak to take some downfield shots. Ultimately, at that point in the game, the direction things take will depend on Arizona's ability to keep things close. It is possible that the Dallas defense is able to overwhelm the Cardinals in that scenario, which would keep this game from turning up. However, if Kyler is able to make some plays and challenge the Dallas offense, then we could see a scenario where the ultra-aggressive Cowboys we saw on Sunday night return. The Lions at the Seahawks kick off Sunday, January 2nd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42.5. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Both teams are dead in the water, giving this game some unpredictability. Seattle is coming off an embarrassing loss to the Nick Foles-led Bears in Week 16. Detroit has been playing very well recently compared to their doormat reputation. Both teams are conservative by nature and have been involved in a lot of low-scoring games recently. How Detroit will try to win. Despite a near-league-worst record, the Lions have been playing well and been very competitive for the last two months. In November and December, the Lions went 2-4-1 with three of the four losses coming by four or less points. Their only big loss was a 38-10 stomping in Denver. This is a very winnable game for the Lions, and as a team who has realistically been out of it for weeks already... They should come in fired up and ready to play as Dan Campbell has done a great job having his team ready to play in year one as the head coach. 
The level of Detroit's aggressiveness will likely rely in large part on the availability of Jared Goff, who missed Week 16 due to COVID protocols and is now highly questionable due to a knee strain. If Goff misses, Tim Boyle should draw his third start of the year. Boyle had a poor game against Cleveland in Week 11, but looked serviceable and adequate in a tight loss to Atlanta last week. DeAndre Swift is practicing in full and will almost certainly return after a four-week absence. In his absence, Emin Ross St. Brown has seen 11-plus targets in four consecutive games. During that time, St. Brown has operated with a 6.6 ADOT, 143rd out of 180 wide receivers who have seen a target, and runs 65% of his routes out of the slot. Whether it is Goff or Boyle behind the center, St. Brown and Swift are likely to be heavily involved in the short area as the best and most consistent playmakers the Lions have. It also helps that they are first- and second-year players that the team will want to build around going forward. Seattle is attacked more easily through the air, due to their 28th-ranked DVOA pass defense. But Detroit isn't that good at passing the ball to where they will lean into that to a severe degree. Detroit will still run the ball for a balanced attack, and will likely give carries to three running backs as Jamal Williams and Craig Reynolds will stay involved on some level. The Lions should be able to move the ball well enough to put some points on the board and stay competitive, as they have been for a majority of the year, as they have been for the majority of the year against non-elite competition. How Seattle Will Try to Win While Russell Wilson's finger injury will likely get the majority of the blame for how things turned out in Seattle this year, the reality is the Seahawks are 4-8 in games that Wilson has started and they have disappointed in basically every facet of the game over the course of the season. The coaching staff and front office's reluctance to lean into a full change to their identity has left them as a rudderless ship that is just below average at everything. Their defense is not very good and is beatable in a variety of ways. Their offense does not have a power running game or any semblance of consistency, yet they also have not embraced playing with tempo or creative play calling to take advantage of their high-end personnel in their passing game. The best teams in the league have a clear identity, and that identity is built around the talents of their best players. The Seahawks have failed miserably in achieving this, and the results should not be surprising to anyone. The Lions have had a solid defense for most of the year, with a few spots where they completely caved in and teams went off, which is what has caused them to rank so poorly in a variety of defensive metrics. In reality, the Lions have been very solid at containing opponents and keeping games close. They have had three games in their last eight where teams scored 27 or more points. Two of those games were against Philadelphia and Denver, 44 and 38 points respectively, two teams who pounded them into submission with their running games and just physically dominated the Lions. The other instance was a 29-27 win over the Vikings, where the Vikings struggled to move the ball efficiently until they became very aggressive late in the game, where they were trailing. Basically, what this is telling us is the Lions actively work to take away explosive downfield passing and make teams work to matriculate the ball downfield. The Seahawks have become more pass-heavy recently but they are mostly built to take shots down the field, which the Lions should be prepared for. The Seahawks have had a better running game with Rashad Penny in the backfield, but are not on the level of the teams who bludgeoned the Lions on the ground. Basically, we should expect a standard game plan from the Seahawks, who have yet to show a creative approach this year, that results in moderate offensive success that is unlikely to be explosive or allow them to separate on the scoreboard. Likeliest Game Flow
The Lions have held five of their last seven opponents under 20 points. Now, facing a Seattle team that barely runs over 50 offensive plays in a given week, it seems most likely that this game is a low-scoring, moderate-to-low-play-volume type of game. Both teams and coaches tend to keep games close and try to win in the fourth quarter. This game is likely to have a lot of long drives and field goals, as both teams project to be able to move the ball and sustain drives, but neither has proven to be overly efficient in converting yards to points. Given the moderate to low pace that we should expect, along with the moderate pass volume, this game will need something big to spark it. Due to the lack of efficiency or explosive plays from either team, the Lions don't have the personnel for big plays and the Detroit defensive philosophy will deter it from Seattle. It is likely that this game stays close throughout and comes down to a couple of fourth quarter drives to decide it.